You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. What will the Virginia election say about the midterm that's coming? up? I've been writing quite a bit on Quora.com. I'm over there, and if you're on Quora, you can follow me. And you know, it's a place where people ask questions. One question was, "What will the Virginia election say about the midterm that's coming up?" So I always point out that there are two off-year elections: Virginia and New Jersey. They're the gubernatorial elections that always seem to come the year after the presidential. And they're read extensively. They have been for years. Jim Florio was a candidate who ran for governor in 1981. He later became governor, traipsing across New Jersey, complaining about President Reagan so much that his opponent, Tom Kane, used it to his advantage, pointing out that he wasn't the president. Why was Florio campaigning against the guy in the White House when he's supposed to be running for governor of New Jersey? So Terry McAuliffe won a very narrow victory, the first for Virginia, where a gubernatorial election was won in Virginia by the party that was in the White House in 36 years. What does it mean? Here's where the dual New Jersey-Virginia off-year trend comes in. See, it might have meant more if a Democrat cleaned up in New Jersey and in Virginia at the same time. Then you might have had this kind of headline, oh, good news for the White House. But that didn't happen. Chris Christie won the governorship of New Jersey in a landslide. So the PR impact of Terry McAuliffe's win in Virginia was muted by the New Jersey results and by the close win. But should they be watching that McAuliffe win? This is not scientific, but it's possible it could mean something. We look at Virginia elections versus midterm results. So 1981, Chuck Robb wins, Virginia governor. It's a big win for Democrats in 1982. There you have it. 1985. Gerald Bales wins the governorship of Virginia. It's a big win for Democrats in the 1986 midterms the next year. 1989, Doug Wilder wins in Virginia. Democrats win in the 1990 elections. In 1993, George Allen wins the governorship of Virginia. Republicans win the 1994 midterms. So far, it's matched up. Party that wins the Virginia governorship has a win in the midterms. 1997, Jim Gilmore wins the governorship of Virginia. He's a Republican, and Democrats gained five seats in the 1998 midterms. Now, that was the year of the Clinton impeachment. There was a backlash. 2001, Mark Warner, a Democrat, wins. We think that maybe following this trend that in 2002 there'll be a big win for the Democrats in the midterms. But no, Republicans crushed Democrats in the 2002 midterms. That's an errant result. But then in 2005 and 2009, you have conformance to this theory. Tim Kaine, Virginia governor, wins. He's a Democrat. Democrats win the 2006 election. 2009, Bob McDonald wins. He's a Republican. Republicans win the 2010 midterms. So from 1981 to 2009, you have a pretty good 
stretch there of only two results against the theory. So maybe McAuliffe means something. Doesn't work as good in New Jersey. The eight elections between 1981 and 2009, it's split. Half the time it predicts the midterm, half the time it doesn't. The Virginia gubernatorial result does speak volumes about where the state goes in 2016. Does it remain competitive or has it leaned more blue than purple? Is it a serious GOP target in 2016? I think it depends on who they run. The state has certainly been put more in the blue column in presidential races. McCall's win is not convincing because it was so close. So I think it's still competitive, not something that the GOP can count on like they used to. Another question on Quora. How did we come to have these quasi-legal entities known as states? Not as strong as a federal government, but still with power. How did the United States transform from colonies to states? Why didn't they just form different states when they declared independent? This is an interesting question. And in answering it, I could tell you about how Portland, Oregon should be in Connecticut. My King Charles is still hurting a group of Americans. How one of the 13 states was not settled by Englishmen. And why Dutch pride created two states. Really, I can answer, though, with one word. The reason the colonies mostly maintained their borders is charters. Charters, my friend. All the perils of a king in a country with a parliament with real power. Never enough say for the king, never enough money. So you trade it. Give rich or powerful people things, and they give you money, armies or other assistance, and cheap, abundant New World land. Land where you were never going to make a royal visit. Why not give it up? Land for kingly assistance in the area that matters? Or are you a king that simply needs to get rid of some troublesome religious fanatics? Give them a spot in the new world and be rid of some rousers. So for the Brits, colonization was regulated through various charters and permissions. The land in America remained a British land, but the charters were strong. And a kingly charter gave the people who had been issued it real power. Sometimes it allowed colonists to form their own governments. The charters said who was in charge, what the borders were. In some cases, they protected religious liberty, freedom of commerce. So you have 13 very different countries. If you were from Virginia, your country, by the way, was Virginia. Just ask Peter Jefferson, father of Thomas. That's how he referred to it, as did many others. Your colony was your country. The colonies were very different. In fact, they almost had little to do with each other and sometimes fought. Maryland had Catholics. New York had rich Dutch families. Pennsylvania had Quakers. Delaware had Dutch families and Swedes who agreed on one thing. They'd rather be separate from Pennsylvania. For a while, they were lower counties of Pennsylvania's colony. Then they got a charter of their own and became a state. So it never was a united British America. Different colonies formed at different times. Different charters from different kings. Favors for help and aid. Military service. Virginia and Massachusetts were the oldest. Virginia is an example of a royal colony. After a short stint as a company-owned colony, the British government directly took control of Virginia and did control it up until independence. Massachusetts, on the other hand, was a charter colony, as was New Hampshire, crafted when London wanted to keep a check on the Bostonians with a competitive colony. And Rhode Island, created by religious dissidents who left Massachusetts and purchased land from the Native Americans and also got a charter, protecting their religious freedom. The Pilgrims, on the Mayflower, could have just went to Virginia. That was the British colony, right? It was established. They purposely did not want to go there. They actually did want to go a little farther south than they ended up. They didn't want to go to Virginia. 
part of the reason that we're all separate states comes from the fact that as colonies, we're very separate from each other. New York, a world prize of a trading post, the island at the center of the world, with an unlimited supply of oysters and other goods, was taken from the Dutch by the British, then taken back by the Dutch, and then taken again by the British. But many of the wealthy Dutch families remained. And you have the Vanderbilts, for instance, the Rockefellers. South Carolina, for instance, was not a colony from England, not England proper. It was a colony of a colony, began by planters in the West Indies who moved up to South Carolina. Thus, it took a lot longer to get away from the plantation system that had been established in the Caribbean and become a one-man, one-vote place, as was New England. It was a very different type of establishment of a colony. Pennsylvania was a Penn family charter, one whose Quakers annoyed the British by not forming a militia. Through all these different radical ideas in different parts of of America. Thus, we have state borders in America that were decided by kingly command. If you cross New Jersey's northern border with New York, that was decided by Charles II to reward his friend George Carteret, whose island of Jersey recognized the king's power before the rest of Britain did after the English Civil War. Crazy, right? And since gas is generally higher in New York than New Jersey, those people right on the border are being screwed by the king. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When the independence movement triumphed, state governments, or at least conventions, were formed in the colonies. They took over the colony jurisdiction, and they had the same respect for borders as did the colonies. Western borders were somewhat contested, as Connecticut claimed everything out to the Pacific. So if you're in Oregon, you're really in Connecticut. So strong, though, was the remaining power of charters that in Maryland, the convention let the proprietary governor stay without any power 
up until June 1776. She had a state still with a governor, a governor appointed by the king. In Philadelphia, the proprietary charter remained in effect, and a May 1776 contest was held for that proprietary government's legislature to get control of it, with one side seeking to use the charter government as a mechanism to declare independence, the other for reconciliation with England. And when John Dickinson's political party, the one that wanted peace with England, though still insist on American liberties, won control of Pennsylvania, only then did the independence faction who didn't win the election, only then did they get radical, take to the streets, form a convention, and dissolve the charter. Before that, they still wanted to use the charter for purposes of political power, standing. So charters were powerful. There was never a chance for equal-sized states from these 13 colonies. The size of states caused a bunch of problems at the Constitutional Convention. But a form of that thinking existed in future states. So as the country formed states westward, the government tried to keep the new states smallish and even. Look at Tennessee and Kentucky, Alabama and Mississippi, Illinois and Indiana. They tried to keep them to similar size shapes and not too big. They couldn't control Texas and California. Texas came from another country. It was the Republic of Texas. California, though it was United States territory as a result of the Mexican War, settlers had gone out there. It wasn't quite under federal government control, and some of the settlers were talking about independence, talking about joining with another country, Spain, Russia. It was a tricky situation, and it was better to let the settlers dictate what they wanted, and they wanted a large state especially wanted that San Diego Harbor, which was quite nice. So you had from San Diego to San Francisco, state of California. But in other states, the Congress did try to keep them small and equal. So in a perfect world, not saying why we uh, can't change, why not just start over and make 50 equal districts of the United States? Well, so change the South Dakota to Federal District 18 or something like that, okay? But despite complaints in U.S. politics about Washington, which are fierce, the fact is that control over many aspects of daily life are reserved to the states. Education, highways, policing, much of health care. Residents of Indiana vote for their state senators and their governor. They need not fear that the surplus population in New York or Texas, that they can never match man for man, will determine how much money they spend on education or how much they tax gas. This is good because states are the laboratories of policy, so goes the thinking. Collapse the bureaucratic units... Okay, and so if South Dakota becomes Federal District 18 or something like this, none of those 50 centralized districts would be able to experiment. Even if they're free to do so by some kind of legislation in the Constitution, they'd be discouraged to anger the money dollars in the central government. So, and I know what many are thinking listening to this, well, some of this goes on already because it is true. Money can give, be given by the U.S. Congress with conditions. Dole v. South Dakota in 1986 made this so. Congress can attach strings, in this case, to a highway funding bill, making the age uh, 21. So if you take the road money, you have to make your drinking age 21. But you still have the experimentation. Louisiana, for instance, didn't take the money. I can remember riding to a swamp boat tour from New Orleans and that seat hurting a bit with all the bumps and cracks in the road. But, you know, life is good for 19-year-olds there. But the one thing that Louisiana provides in that instance uh, was a policy example of if the United States decides to change the policy at the federal level, it's a source of statistics. It's a place where it has been done. 
Absent these policy mavericks that states once in a while can be, you'd never know if the central government policy was right or wrong if we could survive without it. Plus, in theory, the states give you choices of where you can go and what would you like? Do you want a state that taxes your car? Do you want a state that taxes your house? Do you want a state that has no income tax, etc.? Citizens can choose where they want to live, for the most part, and policymakers have a source of data. And states aren't going to get punished for being policy rebels. So I think the states are an important part of the federal government, and they remain so. It's not just an antiquated system, and I'm not ready to give up on states. We talked a bit about Charles II. Now, Charles II is the son of Charles I, Charles Stewart. Great podcast out, Revolutions, by Mike Duncan. I've been listening to it. I think it's a fascinating subject for me, more fascinating than Rome, because you know I tend to follow the American politics, and British politics are the root of American politics. Interesting podcast. I think it's good to follow, because if you understand the English Civil War, as he's doing a great job of explaining it to you, you're going to understand a lot about the American Revolution and how people could come up with a concept that you could overthrow the rule of a king. It had already been done before. And then it also feeds into understanding Charles II, his reign when the monarchy was restored after Cromwell's death and the defeat of the English Republic, that some of what's going on in the New World is rewards for the people who helped him in the Restoration. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Archive is there, $25.99. Yeah. All the episodes from the past, we've talked about a lot of uh, history and politics. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. I'm available on Twitter, at MyHist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.